is happening in our nation and across the world, I think um, is prompting us to find new ways to continue this discourse, not just to continue, actually to take it back and to begin to get on the, to be protagonists for the true and the good in marriage and family. And I think we'll have to create our own language because as you can see, even the word marriage has been hijacked. Uh, this is one of the great things of the left, of whatever you want to call them, the Marxists, the progressives, they're all the same. Um, okay, going forward, uh, big context. The single biggest problem I see that uh, the world is approaching on the social and economic level is its depopulation. It's, lately, I've been surprised, I've been talking about this for quite some time, but uh, lately the, the major press is beginning to pick this up. It's becoming a common theme. The world has quickly, lately recognized. This is very recent data. What you can see there is the drop in global, global fertility. Um, that straight line where it passes the crooked, uh, the sloping line, um, is projecting on into the future. We're there at 2019. Our um, global fertility rate is 2.4. By somewhere around 2035 to 40, it'll begin to drop below replacement at the global level. However, in all the developed countries of the world, the OECD countries, every single one of them are way below replacement. Um, my own native country, Ireland, plans on virtually doubling its population, not through fertility, but by importing them. Uh, it's a population presence of 4.8 million in the next 25 years to keep their social security system intact. They plan on uh, 4 million immigrants. How they're going to pull that off it remains to be seen. And Ireland, by the way, has the second highest fertility rate in Europe. France now has the highest. Um, Ireland used to have one of the highest fertility rates in the world. Um, so. This here, actually, if you look at that um, global map, the big red spots are where this depopulation is having a very, very big effect. Russia, China, Western Europe. Western Europe is disappearing. Um, its fertility rate is around 1.5, way below replacement. I've addressed uh, population issues in Europe many times. Hungary, which is doing a lot, uh, probably the most active of all countries in Western Europe, in the world, in trying to push up its population rate. And they've gotten it up, but not that much. Uh, it's at 1.5. And this is after years of great effort by great people. The one issue that nobody will address, and we'll come to it later, is religion. Better get that. Talking about religion, let's have a look here. This is the spread of the intact married family, which I think is key, is the fundamental to a well-organized society and fundamental to Western civilization. The map here, we can, I, I borrowed it from um, Google, whatever. It's a great one. It shows the, the very dark spots are the places where Christianity grew in the first 300 years. Then the green is the next up to year 600. And the yellow adds on up to about the year 800. But if you go to the year 1000, you'll have most of that map because Russia, Sweden, Norway, they all get uh, included. Now, that's the spread of Christianity. But what I haven't seen anybody refer a lot to, particularly histories of, of economics, that with the spread of Christianity came the spread of the always intact married family. Not that every single family was always intact, but that was the norm and that became gradually the norm and has had a huge impact on the development of cultures, of economies, of universities, of education, of everything, because marriage impacts everything and you get a compounding interest as each generation has more and more married. How do we know this? It's by the retreat from marriage at present. We can see in the social science data very, very clearly the difference that marriage makes on every single outcome measured. Education, health, longevity, 
happiness, mental health, savings, you name it. And I've measured a lot of them. I've measured 130-something of them in US federal surveys. And on every single one, both adults and kids always do best in the always intact married family, without exception. So the retreat from marriage is actually a retreat from what we call, social scientists call social capital, human capital. Uh, we're becoming more deplete. You can see that very clearly in the American black family, and the Marxists are exploiting that with the critical race theory and Black Lives Matter. Sure, the black family is way behind. Because starting in the late 40s, the black marriage began to uh, break apart. And by the way, my personal thesis on that, the black family was the first one targeted for contraceptives by what was the name of it, whatever, it used to be, it's now called Planned Parenthood, but they had a prior name then. And they argued, the mode of entry was through the black pastor, and they made what seemed like a rational argument. Look, we can help your people avoid poverty by having less kids, so why don't you help these black mothers, black women, black families have less kids? And the black family was the one first penetrated by contraception. Black Family began to break down. If you look at the national data, marriage began to break down about the late 40s. It took a bit later for the white, etc. cetera, um, but they all gradually catch up. But black family by far has it worse. So now in certain families, five, six, seven generations of out of wedlock births, where kids have not known a grandfather or a great grandfather, etc., all the way down. You've got a continuing depletion of human capital there now being exploited. You can see it the way it is being exploited. Um, this is to, if you look at an iceberg, most of it's below the water. Well, what we read and what we see in the news is what's above the water. Everything actually ultimately comes down to that bottom point where man and woman comes together and the new being is created through sexual intercourse. That's the beginning of history for every single one of us. That's the beginning of history. I was going to say since the beginning of time, but Adam wasn't brought into existence that way. Okay? Um, but everyone since. And there everything begins, even for the church. Now, the assault on the family I see as something, and what we've been discussing today, and all the difficulties the family and marriage and rights, et cetera, are, are being discussed, is the result of a very long-term project, which began with the French Revolution, picked up speed in the, and, and you know, Marx and Engels are direct descendants of the French Revolution. They have a few uh, other people helping distill their, their thoughts in between, but they deliberately targeted marriage, the family, and religion as the two big obstacles to the socialist state. Now you can see how far advanced we are now in the socialist state here in the US already, but you can already see what has facilitated that is the breakdown in marriage, as well as the retreat from religion. Um, you have there Lenin, Russia, 40, he immediately abolished marriage, actually the chaos was such that in Russia they had restored marriage by around the, about 1930, and then became rather conservative on marital things. Um, in Germany, you had the race between the communists and the Nazis for control of Germany. Hitler won, the communists lost. The Marxist, um, cultural, cultural Marxist professors uh, congregated mainly at Frankfurt University, the Frankfurt Institute, had to hightail it out of there because most, they were communists, but on top of that, most of them also were secular Jews. So they had two marks against them as far as the Nazis were concerned. A good swath of them were welcomed into Columbia University by, um, oh, the famous education guy, uh, Dewey. John Dewey welcomed the, the, uh, many of the Frankfurt School into Columbia University Teachers College, which became, this is very important for the history of the breakdown of marriage, family, law, et cetera, in the United States. Kate Millett, who's the 
lady you can see there on that book, got her doctorate in the book which she made. Her dissertation was turned into that book, Sexual Politics, which was one of the key how-to manuals for the Marxist feminists. Um, we'll have a bit later on something from her sister, Mallory Millett. Uh, Shulamit Firestone wrote around the same time. You want to know the whole transgender and everything that's yet to come? Shulamit Firestone had it all foreseen and laid out in her book. Um, oh, the title will come back to me. But in any case, short book, brilliant young lady. By the way, all of these feminists, of all the biographies I've led, read, all had fathers you would wish on no person on earth. So their, their hostility to men, which is a key part, is understandable in personal terms. Um, that doesn't justify it, but it does. I think the most brilliant, quiet, and all the rest, effective culture of Marxists is our last president. Um, no, sorry, not our last president, the one before that. Um, President Obama. I had followed him, and once he reached the Senate, I had followed him very carefully. Um, definitely advanced the agenda very, very carefully, never pushing the limit too much, always a little bit more. But you could see on the life issues and on the religion where both of them came together, he was prepared to go to the absolute limit on, you remember, in the health care to get the abortion and contraception being forced on the nuns. You remember that? And it almost brought down his legislation. Almost. Um, very deliberate in pushing the agenda further. I'm going to focus quite a bit now on marriage, as we have been here. It is within marriage, actually, that the young child learns the five major tasks that compose the basic institutions of society. They're also the basic tasks of the family. So the, the society is mirrored right within the family. And the basic tasks are family itself, the harnessing of the sexual, the adoration of God, the prayer, family, church, school. All the research shows the most powerful element, even if, no matter you go to Harvard, the single most powerful element in your education and attainment was how your parents first taught you at the beginning. Uh, the impact of family is huge. Um, then the marketplace. The marketplace begins in the family, and the good family is earning its bread, and the kid learns how to work and all the rest. If the parents are competent, they induct their child into the mini marketplace, as it were, and then gradually out therefrom. And then government. Well, the family itself, the good family, governs itself. And children learn good governance when they have parents who govern well. And so a basic fundamental. Now, some of the things demographically, we had the tipping point in, for one of the big tipping points for the United States was in 1991, when first births, the majority of first births were out of wedlock and have remained so ever since, increasingly so. Uh, that little picture down at the bottom is uh, the U.S. Uh, Census released a report uh, at the beginning of this year on out-of-wedlock mothers. And it does, at the beginning, in the preface, points out the deficits that these kids will attain. However, if you look at the picture itself, and that's the official picture, it looks like a picture of very happy women with very happy kids, like as if things were ideal, whereas it's quite the opposite for those kids. Um, we did talk about uh, the impact of family structure, but also the impact of religious worship is massive. On every single outcome in the same 130 measures I was talking about from all the federal surveys that do measure religious practice, and there are quite a few, across every outcome measured, those who do best in the country as a group, adults or kids, are in the group that worships weekly. The high school students who get the best grades in the country as a group are those who worship weekly. And those who get the lowest grades as a group are those who don't worship at all. And then you've got it down you know, monthly, uh, weekly, 
a couple of times a month, a couple of times a year, never. Uh, some of the outcomes, it goes this way, because sometimes a little religion is worse than none. And the first case I ever came across that, I thought was, guess who fears death the most? Anxiety at death. It's the one who worshipped a little. The one who doesn't believe in God, well, he's not going to be. But the one who did believe enough to worship a little is the one who has the greatest anxiety at death. However, if he was good Catholic, of course, he would be going more frequently than, than, once, than a little. But if he's Catholic and he gets the priest before, that's one of the great things. He's, he can go right in. Well, if he's a good Christian, he'd make a, an act of contrition and he'd still go right in. But maybe not with all the graces that the sacraments give. Definitely not without. Okay. Enough theology. <laughs> okay. This is, by the way, this is the poverty paradox. I just want you to just look at the lines. What you can see on that shaded gray is the increase in spending by the U.S. government in constant dollars. And what you have in the um, forget it. I'm going to misinterpret that and I just leave it. <laughs> Rather, okay, here's the way it sum up all the social science research. You've got the model, uh, a model of how society thrives and a model of how society wilts. The green is thriving, the brown is the wilting. Three components reflected in all economies in the, in, in the nation, uh, in, the, in the world, where these data can be found. More worship, more children, more marriage. That's what you need for a thriving economy. Less worship, less marriage, less kids, you've got a breaking society or a depleting society. Guess which model is in force in the U.S. Congress. Guess which is in our, our welfare state is the brown model, not the green. And it's part of the reason why I'm going to take the rest of this or as we, in, a, in a short while, transition into something. I am a clinical psychologist by training and then switched into public policy. So I tend to want to be practical and to make a difference and to move things forward. How do we move things forward? Well, by the way, here's one here on fertility. The only thing in demographics that has a major effect on fertility rates is frequency of religious worship. Nothing else holds a candle to it. These data come from John Mueller, who's at Ethics and Public Policy Center, a great um, economist and social scientist. And this is from, this is world data. And what you can see, depending on the, what you have there is a scatter plot of all the nations of the world. And the more frequently religious worship is there, the higher their fertility rates. I presented this data to all the social ministers of Europe twice, and I'd be presenting it a third time next month. And if it happens next month, what happened before is just a massively embarrassing silence. They're afraid even to ask a question on it. It's just like I spoke to an echo chamber or spoke to a bunch of faceless people. Presenting the only data that makes any difference on pushing up fertility in countries that are very concerned as their economies begin to collapse internally. Ireland, we used to say Mother Ireland, great Catholic Ireland, given up on worship, virtually given up on marriage, importing four million people, and here's the data that they won't have a look at. This is insane. Now, one of the things that I didn't present before, but I want to draw to your attention, that Data there on fertility is the woman who has the child. So there's the frequency of worship of the women. But within the family, all the social science data points to 
the person in the family who has the greatest impact on the transmission to the next generation of the faith, of the religion of the parents, is the father and his practice, not the mother. The mother has an effect. But the father is the one who has the huge effect on the children being religious. The, the, the phrase, you know, all fatherhood comes from God, comes very much to mind as that just with that fact. Actually, when you combine that, um, you can see that small one, the four pillars, the two blue and the two red. What they show there is the tall blue pillar, and this holds for all outcomes. The tall blue one there is the intact married family that worships weekly. And there we're looking at grade point average for all the high school kids in America from the biggest survey we have, uh, the Ad Health Survey. Um, they're the kids who are in always intact married family and worship weekly. The blue, the next blue one, the shorter one, by contrast, these are kids from an intact married family, but the family doesn't worship at all. And you can see the difference in the grade point average. Now that red one behind the tall blue one is the broken family, the non-intact, that worships weekly. And then the other blue one, which is the smallest of all, is the non-intact that doesn't worship at all. They have the lowest grade point average. Presented this data to Congress while they were doing their massive spending on education. You want to improve education? There you have it. Marriage and worship. Now the bad news. This here is from Pew Data, very recent. Shifting views on the growing variety in family living arrangements. And this is US population in general in the last, um, roughly the last decade. Um, marriage makes no difference. There's been a huge rise in the proportion of population who think that from 34 to 45%. Marriage is a good thing, it's declined, and marriage is a bad thing, it's declined uh, even more. We're going in the wrong direction, and if you look, you can't read this thing, but go to the Pew, Pew Research Center, is very good for this sort of data, and in there you can get this one. Republicans, who we tend to think are more conservative and more inclined to be on the right side of these things. Not that there aren't many Democrats who are, but there are more Republicans who tend to be for marriage and for worship. But they had the biggest drop, and the other huge drop that surprised me very much is the elderly are the ones who see marriage as less important. Normally you would think the elderly would be the ones who would have the wisdom and be more. No, no, there's strange shifts happening in the country. Now, here's something I want to bring to your attention because this is part of the rest of the thesis. These data here, what you have there in the, um, that, let me get this one right. Abortion is that green that's sort of in between the other two. The out-of-wedlock birth is that blue line that rises steadily, and uh, children in divorce is that brown one behind it. So where they, I have Humana Vitae coming in there, that's 1968. So you can see coming up to 60, it, through the 60s and the 70s is when things, by the 70s into the early 80s, things really reached a peak of the breakdown of the family. That's where the huge thrust, the sexual revolution took place. Um, Humana Vita came out there in 68. Now that red line below that you can see that goes back to 1954, which is 1954, which is, you know, 14 years before that, almost 10 years before Vatican II. In 54, Pope Benedict, who was then, Pope Benedict XVI, was then a young professor in Germany. And he wrote, early wrote an article that almost got his academic career canned. And the article was The Pagans in the Church. Go online, you can get it and you can read it. It's a short, short enough article. And his thesis was that in early Christianity, pagans converted and entered the church. 
Now he's writing in the 50s. He's saying, in modern times, Christians become pagan, but stay in the church. They don't exit. That was in the 50s. Now then you had this, you had the revolt against Humanae Vitae, which came, you know, Humanae Vitae came 14 years later. Um, had a huge effect on me. And by the way, we're about, it's years and years of research. We'll have it finished. I don't know when it's going to get published, probably a year after. We'll have the most comprehensive overview of all the effects of contraception on everything measured, on demographics, on human relationships, on health, mental health, cancer, thrombosis, the whole lot. It's even intergenerational in its effects. It may even be changing the inheritability of certain things. Huge. Why do I bring up contraception here? Contraception is that which took sex outside of marriage. It decoupled the procreative from the unitive. It was the tool the left used to achieve what Marx and Engels set out to do. You get young adults having sexual intercourse frequently outside of marriage. You're going to kill marriage and you're going to kill worship simultaneously. And it has happened. It's the poison pill that's undoing everything. As a matter of fact, it's the beginning of Austin Roos. Kathy Roos will be speaking tomorrow. Her husband, Austin, has written a great book. And inside it, he's developed this strong thesis that I agree with, that what the state has, our state, our government, through and our Supreme Court in particular, but others as well, has actually been constructing a new religion. Definitely with a new morality. Definitely with a totally different view of creation, of existence, of man's relationship to God. All of the marks of a religion. The religion I would call is a very ancient one. It's Gnosticism. And I would contend that here, and look at this data, the effect of contraception is worse on the human soul and the human race and on God than abortion. Because contraception denies God the children he desires. Abortion does not. It's huge in its effects. And it's still the silent corrupter all over the place. Catholic data that had, there's one year where the National Survey of Family Growth, uh, it was back in the early 90s, it measured, it always measures uh, lots of things, but this particular year it measured not just religious worship, which it does all the time, but Catholics. And then it asks a strange question in a federal survey. If you dig into it, it said, how many of them receive communion on Sunday or in their weekly worship? Said, Where's that question coming from in a federal survey? I know where. How many Catholic women who receive communion are contraceptive? Who wanted to know that? the enemy of the church. The data, actually, I thought it was going to be worse than it was. Maybe it was the pessimist in me, but the data was that, and this was back in the early 90s, 52% of women who receive communion on Sunday, women in their fertile years, not all women, that women in their fertile years, who are married, are receiving communion and contraceptive. And by the way, the biggest form of contraception for women 30 and over is not the pill. You never hear anything about this. It's vasectomy and their husband tubal ligation. And that's where, when this happens, and when we get down to, if you go back to that iceberg thing, the beginning of all human existence happens here. This is where the parent the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, even within the sacrament of marriage, 
sever their creative relationship with God. It has massive consequences throughout the whole sacramental system, within the family, intergenerationally. Sex outside of marriage is just a given. And actually, if you go back, the enemies of the church, the enemies of human nature, went for contraception before they went for abortion in the Supreme Court. That's the facilitator, first to the Massachusetts, then to bring sex outside of marriage that, that singles had the right to contraception. That brought it outside of marriage. Well, once you have singles having uh, contraception, you're going to have lots of failures, which means you have lots of unwanted babies, and then, of course, the need for abortion, or the so-called human felt need for abortion. If you go through um, Professor Ratzinger's article on the paganization, it's very interesting. He calls it the paganization of the church. And I realized, as a social scientist, studied sociology a lot. And there's a term we use in social science called secularization. And there's a whole lot of studies on the secularization. I just realized, wait now. It's those who are neutral on God will call it secularization. But I never saw it in the social science, but a, a similarly appropriate term would have been paganization. The more secularized the society becomes, essentially the more paganized it becomes. And the opposite to it would be sacralization. So what we've been moving over the last couple of hundred years is from essentially a sacralized, Christianized, as Christianity had its huge impact on, on the whole human race, even communist China, by the way, acknowledges that. They have an institute for the study of Christianity. The reason they brought it there, and um, when I was at the Heritage Foundation, I did a paper, and a Chinese scholar visited me from that institution. It's a communist-run institution. Their motivation was they realized that Europe, in the Renaissance period, outstripped China, overtook China as the leading civilization in the world. And they wanted to understand why. And they had a fair idea it had something to do with Christianity. That's why they're digging it. Why that? They want the benefits of Christianity without Christianity. That's what they're trying for. Now, what I contend, actually, if you go back, you remember that map I showed you, the gradual crystallization of Europe from the dark green to the lighter green to the yellow? As Christianity spread, so spread marriage. Well, where the future of rights and strengths and relationships lie, actually, I think, is in marriage itself. In Christ's view, and his, when he articulated, he was always very strong. On matters sexual, very forgiving, but very strong and unbending. On divorce, contraception was a big issue among early Christians. They never did it, and... Rome was contracepting like anything. The, probably the biggest reason why the Roman Empire fell was its depopulation of Roman citizens. It had to import barbarians to run the army. And these guys got to the top and took over. And of course, that was the end of Roman civilization. And that was contraception. The Romans had, had far advanced forms of contraception. Christians never did it. Um, but the normal vocation of Christians is to be married. And the normal work of most parents is to prepare their kids to have a great marriage. It's that simple. And that's done within the family. How? By the parents gradually having a great marriage. You don't get a great marriage overnight unless you've been extraordinarily blessed by your parents and God has saved you from a lot of fallen human nature, and you get that combination, you might have a great marriage right off. Most, most people are born incompatible or get married and find out they're incompatible. And then the rest of marriage is learning to become compatible. And as they do that, their kids see that and learn, and learn what true love is. And by the way, key within that and key to all of Christianity and Christian culture is the formation of chastity and modesty. 
Because without that, the sexual is undermined. And once the sexual is undermined, the family is undermined, and God is undermined. And within the family, actually, that does that, you get the same formation that is required of a priest, a religious, or a celibate is the very same formation as is needed for a good marriage. So the great family, the good marriage, is both the best seminary and the best preparation for, for religious life and is the preparation for a good married life. All things are done within there. Now, why am I putting all this emphasis? Oh, well, let's go a little bit further. Yeah, we've got good time. One of the greatest developments in the social sciences that happened in the last couple of years, and I think it's going to change all humanity. You never heard that statement before from anybody, did you? And here it is. You see this father here. Uh, you may, a number of you women already have heard of this, but the implications are huge. Coming out of uh, Hong Kong Maternity Hospital back about, oh, best part of a decade ago or about seven years ago, uh, an experiment was conducted on um, father's attachment to the children. And the biggest maternity hospital, they had about 200 couples having their child for the first time. Normal length of stay for a mother in the hospital was three days. So what they had the father, they divided the fathers randomly. You go to the experimental group, bump, bump, experimental control, experimental control, half and half. The fathers in the experimental group held their baby in the hospital for 15 minutes every day, skin to skin. Hands up the women who have heard about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's at least a dozen in here. Pardon. The impact, however, I don't know if you've heard of this. Over the, well, what they found immediately was that it's six months and a year later, or three, six and a year later, huge difference in the attachment of both the kid and the father to each other in the experimental group compared to the other. That occasioned a lot of follow-up. They've done a lot of MRI, what's happening in the brain, uh, the hormonal changes, et cetera, in the father and the kid. And what's actually happening is the brain of the father is changing and the brain of the kid is changing, son or daughter. And so are the hormone levels, and they're adapting to each other. Now, the other great stuff, I don't know if you've heard it, a bit later, they then measured what's happening to the mother when she sees the father doing this. Similar brain changes and different hormonal changes. So what you're getting here is a, a real adaptation, almost like a, a mini trinity. <laughs> well, the mini trinity that the family is. And this is the role of the father coming in. Now, getting a little bit proactive, you can see how this could be used in those who are abusing the welfare state who have abused black children for decades, who are now exploiting them with Black Lives Matter, and say, look, it's very simple. Black fathers hold their children skin to skin when they're born. It's going to have a huge difference, a huge impact on the relationship of the father to that kid. And with the mother watching, she's going to love that guy. That's what happens. I have an experimental group going. Um, and the young, three young men in it, all from El Salvador, the leader of the group, when I was explaining this, had the three-month-old baby. And we're meeting now once a month. And after the first time I explained this, he went home. Next day, he took his shirt off, got his three-month-old, held her. Second day, he got home from work, did the same thing. Third day, the wife said, what's going on? <laughs> and then he described it. And as she talked, as he talked, tears began to come up in her eyes. And then she started crying. Tears of joy. The power here is immense. We, and by this I mean the church, nobody understands marriage the way the Catholic Church does. My excuse, the other Christians who are present, but nobody. Nobody holds it as firmly in doctrine. I'm not saying we don't have loads of sinners. We're a church of sinners probably more than saints, but that was always the case. Look at all the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, sanctity only comes from a long struggle and uh, for most of us. But we have this tremendous understanding, and we're not giving it to the world. We're not bringing it into, into the American discourse on marriage, family, Black Lives Matter, what's happening, and all this discourse. 
We know how to do family. We know how to raise the best kids. That's not confined to Catholics, actually. That's, that holds across all religions. Intact marriage, frequency of religious worship, gives the best kids across all denominations. That's a universal. And every parent who has a new child would want for that child a good marriage later. This is a universal across Catholics, Protestants. Of course, we're all evangelicals. We don't call them Protestants anymore, right? They don't call themselves Protestants. We call them evangelicals, Christians. Uh, we're all one family. We're all baptized. We're all part of the mystical body of Christ with baptism, which is the church. But it holds also for Jews. It holds for Muslims. It holds for Hindus. It holds for Confucian, even though Confucian don't worship, but they have that sense of the transcendental, mainly with their ancestors. We have the language and the concepts that the world needs. Now we've just got to start getting them into the discourse. And skip over that. We've done that. Now, the father's main role, and the father is the key thing. Let me skip ahead to something, and then I come back. Ooh, should have been there. I didn't see it. Ah, I inserted it, but it didn't transfer. There is, what I was looking for is there is a famous meeting. Uh, Kate Millett, I was talking about, she was that national organization woman. Her sister, Mallory Millett, um, had divorced her husband, in, who was a businessman over in, in Asia, was invited by Kate as she came home with her little baby kid to live with Kate until she got her feet on the ground and started getting her, her way back in life. So she was living with Kate while the women who formed the National Organization of Women were meeting. Some of you may have seen this. I think the most important journalism on marriage and family or the breakdown is this thing by, her, by Mallory Millett. It was in Frontline Magazine in 2014, in which they recount, as these women met, they opened their meetings with a chant. You know, how will we do this? How will we do this? How will we you know, essentially displace the patriarch. And then and the, the answers all the way down were digging deeper and deeper into the destruction of marriage by the destruction of the family, by getting the man sexually active. How would you do that? By pornography, homosexuality, prostitution, eroticism, etc. That was the final line. The agenda was very, very clear. And this was in the late, late 60s, NOW, one of the women there, not Kate Miller herself, she was, uh, Linda Karp, went on to found the first feminist studies at Princeton, the first Ivy League. And the other women did similar things. So all these women's study groups that are now all over the country, getting deep into all the state universities and across more and more of the world, come right out of that. Uh, which is to push the father out of the family. I propose, actually, that... Uh, now, I heard Mike Farris this the first time, and it, it made an impression we should talk about needs rather than rights. But for the public discourse thing, I would push back with, look, there is one universal right that the child has inalienable, and that is the right. The child has the right to the marriage of his parents because without it, he's not going to become a mature human being. He's not going to have the competence that he would have with that. That is the answer to Black Lives Matter. That is the answer to a lot of things. Now, getting there is a totally different thing. Um, but we should be on the pushing on that. How do you get that? Well, before two adults have sexual intercourse, they better be married. And we should make them aware, look, if you're about to have intercourse, if you're not married, you may violate a kid's right right now. And actually, the violation of the right that happens by having intercourse is setting the kid up possibly to be eliminated through abortion, definitely setting him up probably for out-of-wedlock births in modern society. 
things have gone so far. Uh, the, the data had a huge effect on me on becoming a bit more radical on these things and beginning to speak out in different language. In 2019, there's an article on uh, the family intentions of young women in the U uh, not in the US, in Michigan. We can't get this data for the whole of the United States, but Michigan is important because it's like a bellwether state demographically. What tends to, what's happening in Michigan tends to be happening across the, the country, and that's well known among US demographers. Among these young women, age 18 to 25, so they're about to become mothers or becoming mothers. This is the young generation about to raise the next generation of kids. 80% of them are open to single parenthood. 80%. Not necessarily planning it, but opening it. 20% then in, in 10 marriage, but of that 20, only 10% of them, only half of them, in 10, marriage the way we think of getting married, raising kids, that's the prime time. The other 10% are going to get married, and if they have a kid, it will be within marriage. But the real intention is material welfare, material well-being. Uh, not the double income, no kids. Maybe the double income, one kid. Maybe double income, two kid. But it's really the income, and it's the good life. Knowing, and these tend to be educated people, the best way to have the good life actually is to be married. You earn more. you save more, you live longer, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine like a modern, college-educated, middle-income couple with no kids can live a life of luxury the kings of the past couldn't even dream of. Um, so the, the temptations are huge. My contention is with this infrastructure, Remember what Ben Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it? With 80% of our young women thinking that it's okay for the kid not to have a father, that republic is gone. And the control of marriage, by the way, like on the same-sex marriage in Indiana, you remember that when um, I think it was Vice President Pence was governor? and they were changing that legislation. Who came in to change it? Google, Amazon, Microsoft. That's how it was changed, stopped. Oligarchs have more influence on marriage and family in this country even than states do. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, etc. We all know that much more influence on our kids. Cardinal George once addressed the oligarch issue. It's huge. Multinational corporations and multinational oligarchs have no power controlling them. There's no, nowhere in the world that controls them. It's a huge problem for politics. And, he, and he, this was at a, uh, Cardinal George was at a conference the Library of Congress put on for the second millennium. And it had a whole series of great conferences with great scholars from all over the world. Nobody in the country knew about it. Government doesn't know how to market. But um, he was there, and I was at the Heritage Foundation just down the street and heard about it and attended. He was asked about uh, the, the church and political structures. He said, look, the church has been around for a long time. We've lived under many, many different political regimes. We're not wedded to anyone. There are a few we're totally against because they're unjust and evil. Uh, but we're not wedded to anyone. However, the problem that we now face is the multinational corporations he, he mentioned, was the words he used. But I'm transferring that to the oligarchs. And there is no solution to this. And it's going to be the big problem for the world to solve. By the way, the biggest pusher of contraception and depopulation in Africa is Bill Gates. They're all behind all of that. It's huge. Where does all this lead? Back to marriage and family. This here, that picture there, a key step in the early marriage, when the kids are about four or five, bringing in other families, so that your kids make kids with other four or five-year-olds. Why? Because 
if you leave it for them to become friends with very good peers till they're teens, it won't happen. But if you do it at age five, it will, and they'll grow up together. And at the teens is, of course, when the big battle is on the sexual, on purity, on chastity, all of that. But they need their friends well in place before. The role of the father in all of that, the sexual education. Here's my dream. The father goes down to the public school and says, look, you don't say a thing about sex to my kids. I'm the expert on it. By the way, is my sexual intercourse brought this kid into existence. You have nothing to say about it. I have everything. No, no, if we had men who were willing to do that, that's the reality. Time to do that. If we do that, and only if we do that, without marriage and the family, society cannot be saved. And tell me, who's going to protect and advance marriage and family more than Christians. Now, actually, the strange thing right now is Muslims are doing it better than Christians as a group, though Muslims have the same problems, believe me, and they're growing. Time for us to step up and step out. I'm talking to the converted here at Steubenville, but from here we're taking it on out there. If we do that, we can regain the world. We've, the, Christ has already penetrated massive amounts of the world. It's looking for leadership, but the leadership it had in the beginning, the first 300 years, the missionary work of the church happened family to family, friend to friend. May that happen now again. Thanks very much.